0: His word we will be reading from Luke chapter 22 verses 24 through 38 a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest and he Jesus said to them the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated.
1: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard your word read in this, your house, we would ask now for the mighty wind of your Holy Spirit to come and to blow through the hearts of your people, changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and giving us a sight that we do not have on our own giving us faith that we cannot conjure up from within, giving us the light of the life, the glory of Jesus Christ. Come now and speak to us. Come and make yourself known among us. Come and let Christ be made plain to our hearts that we might see Him as more beautiful and believable than we ever have before we ask this in Jesus name amen well as some of you know we had a great opportunity this weekend as quite a few of you took advantage of it where we were hosting a conference as a church a conference entitled from Death Unto Life, a conference in preparation for Holy Week. That's exactly where we are. We're right here on Palm Sunday looking forward to the week ahead and the unfolding of the final hours of Jesus' life. It is, as some have said, the Super Bowl of the church calendar. It's an exciting time in the season of the church. To, to focus in upon the most central reality... Of Christ and him crucified, his victory over the grave. Well, I have the responsibility this weekend of introducing a couple of speakers, giving quite a few talks, and I was rummaging through a number of books to collect quotes and all kinds of things that we could use over the course of the conference. And and I stumbled across this old book by Epicetus. I had not read it in years. I remember picking it up in college. Um, I went through a stage in college where I was very, very interested in manners and Um, the relationship between manners and morals and culture and how we show deference for one another. In fact, I even talked my wife at that point in time, simply a a friend, and was uh, seeking to get to know her better into taking a manners course with me in college. That's correct. Yes, I did this. We read, you know, Emily Post and all of those sorts of wonderful things. I learned how to set tables and I learned how to be a perfect gentleman. Uh, in that context, and of course I swept her off her feet. <laughs> yeah, I'll pay for that one later, but anyway, I remember this book. This was one of the books that we engaged with from Epictetus. He's a Greek philosopher, stoic philosopher from years ago, and this is a, a translation of his work, and under this title of this particular section, it's entitled, Be Careful About the Company You Keep. Be careful about the company you keep. Listen to some of his instructions here. Be careful whom you associate with. It is human to imitate the habits of those whom we interact with. We inadvertently adopt their interests, their opinions, their values, and their habit of interpreting events. Though many people mean well, they can just the same have a deleterious influence on you because they are undisciplined about what is worthy and what isn't. Just because some people are nice to you doesn't mean you should spend time with them. Just because they seek you out and are interested in you or your affairs doesn't mean you should associate with them. Be selective about whom you take on as friends, as colleagues and neighbors. All of these people can affect your destiny. The world is full of agreeable and talented folk. The key is to keep company with only those who will uplift you. Well, if we were to take that instruction from Epicetus to its logical degree, I dare say you should ever join a church. (laughs) Only associate with people who will uplift you. You ever found a church to be a downer? people in the church to be discouraging? I have, I'll be honest with you, on more than one occasion, depending on which hour of the week it might be. You know, I'm glad Jesus didn't listen to Epicetus' advice. There is certainly wisdom in being careful who you hang out with, right? Bad company corrupts morals, we're actually told in Proverbs. That's a true and biblical principle, and we should keep that in mind. We must be aware of the turnings of our heart and when we are under the spell of bad influence, of keeping it at safe distance and learning to nurture our hearts on the things which are good and right and true and beautiful. But the realization is we're all pretty messed up. If you're ever going to be with anybody at any given point in time, you're going to come under a deleterious effect use the word of Epicetus. You know, I, I kind of thought about it when I read that section looking for a quote for something else entirely this weekend. It really fits with where we are this morning with the passage of Jesus and his disciples. I'm just so glad Jesus didn't follow Epicetus' advice, the Stoic philosopher, because he didn't hang out with people who just uplifted him. He, hang out, he hung out with these rascals, these disciples who, who, are, who are dense, who are disruptive, who always are concocting sort of a, a half-aimed and thought-out, baked plan. And he poured his entire life into them. And, and they're the kind of people he uses to build his kingdom with. It's amazing. And when we look at this passage these three vignettes, these three stories that really kind of get lost in the shuffle from the triumphal entry to immediately following this, we begin to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating great drops of blood and the crucifixion of Jesus and all of the stories we're really familiar with. But this section kind of gets lost a little bit, I think, in the wash of the last few hours of Jesus' life, and yet it teaches us so much about his mission. It teaches us so much about his love and affection for his people and for those of whom he's come for. He didn't come for those people who are well. He came for those who are sick with sin. He came with those like Randy Allen. (laughs) He came like those with Nate Sheridan. He came like those who are you sitting in this pew this morning. He builds his kingdom with us, with our types. It's pretty remarkable. We want to look at this passage under three Ds this morning. You're welcome. We're going to look at this passage under three D's this morning. We're going to look at it under the word dispute, which you'll find right at the very beginning of the text. Um, we're going to look at it under under the word denial. And we're going to look at it under the word deliverance. Dispute, denial, and deliverance. And we'll see if I can make short work of this wonderful passage. If you'll remember from last week. Jesus had caused quite a stir among the disciples when at the conclusion to the institution of the Lord's Supper, as they had been sitting there at the Passover table, He tells us that there is one who is sitting at the table who is going to be the one who is His betrayer. It caused quite a stir among the disciples. Immediately, they began to ask the question, who among us would do such a thing? Who among us at this table would even consider of turning Jesus in. And undoubtedly, they begin as disciples, as we would do in that context where the name of the person is not mentioned, only that the presence of the person is there within this close bunch of company. A, a, kind, of, a kind of suspiciousness would have come over the disciples, wouldn't it? it would have come over you as well. You'd have begun, as I would have begun, to make mental assessment of these various characters who are around the table. I mean, I can conceive of of James thinking, you know, I bet it's Matthew. He was a tax collector after all. You know, it's kind of in his DNA to be deceptive. Maybe he's fallen back into his old ways. He was a collaborator with Rome anyway previous to coming to know Christ. Maybe he's decided that he's going to forsake Jesus and he's going to go with the sure thing. He's going to go with the bird in the hand. Maybe Philip is thinking, you know, Bartholomew, he's a quiet, kind of agreeable sort of fellow, unassuming. You've got to watch those people. You, know, you never really know what they're thinking as they sit there with curious looks on their faces and don't really say anything. Could he have concocted a clandestine plan to do in Jesus? And then, of course, one of the disciples who we actually see in this particular text would have given voice to his assessment. You can guess who that would have been. Yes, that's right, Peter. Well, I'll just clear the record. It's not me, guys. It's not me. And you know what? It's not James and John either because we're Jesus' best friends, after all. He took us up on the Mount of Transfiguration. We were the only ones who were able to see the glory of Jesus alongside Moses and Elijah. Don't even begin to think that it has me written on it when we start talking about this thing called betrayal. But, of course, Thomas says, now, Peter, Peter, don't get ahead of yourself here. (laughs) I remember a setting in which you told Jesus that he's not going to go and complete his mission, and he said something like, let me me remind you, get behind me, Satan. I think he said that about you, Peter, as I recall. Um, Because that is the case, how can I not be sure that you're being used as an instrument of the evil one right now which clearly he's used you in the past oh that's preposterous that's, a, that's crazy talk Thomas because Jesus has already told me that he's gonna use me as the resource the rock on which he's gonna build his church <laughs> Thomas did he ever say that to you did he ever say that did he ever say that to you <laughs> silence yeah that's what I thought you can see how this this knowledge that a betrayer is coming bleeds into the dispute that they have right here at the very beginning of this text. It says they're arguing over who it is that's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. It's a a quick jump, isn't it, from being able to evaluate those who you feel may be suspiciously uh, playing into the hand of this plot of betrayal to then begin to highlight all the good things that you've done as you've cataloged all of the bad things that they're doing. We do it naturally, don't we? When we get together with our colleagues, we begin to compare notes, we begin to consider their bad qualities in light of our good qualities, we begin to consider our ascendancy, are we greater than them, or, or, or how is it that we are a mark above those who are around us? You know, it's just, you know, get a bunch of mothers together in the playground talking about various models of discipline and what they do with their children, what begins to happen all this nauseating kind of stuff right here that we're seeing here in the text. It's the kind of things that happens when you go to pastor's conferences, to be quite frank. Yeah, you know, how big is your church, right? How many baptisms did you do? How much money are you giving to missions? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's those kinds of things, and it's, it's pride, It's pride that's gotten a hold of the disciples and it's manifesting itself in an age-old expression. You can always spot pride because when pride is showing up in your life, you're immediately comparing yourself to others. You're immediately comparing yourself to others. This is a trap that every single one of us are falling into. We want to know where we are in the pecking order. And so we catalog very quickly and carefully and succinctly what are the good qualities and achievements and exploits that we've been able to accomplish and how is it that we match up to those who are going to be around us and here we see in this passage that the disciples were in the midst of that kind of discussion and they were thinking hey listen we're going to come into some power here pretty soon. And when we come into some power, I'd like to know where I'm going to sit. Am I going to sit at the head of the table with the right of the head of the table at two seats down from the right of the head of the table, or am I going to sit under the table? You know, where, where, is, where is my position? And the disciples are in the midst of that discussion, and you know what we're told? It's immediately in the midst of this discussion, according to John, in John chapter 13, you know what's actually happening? Jesus is pouring a basin of water. Uh, Jesus is grabbing a towel. He's tying it around his waist. Uh, Jesus is one who's getting down on his knees and he starts washing his disciples' feet. I can only imagine that would be really unnerving at the moment when Peter is saying, you know, that's preposterous. I'm totally a big deal when it comes to the disciples. He's going to use me to build his." Hey, Jesus, what are you doing with my feet? What What are you doing with my feet down there? Must have been an embarrassing moment when when Jesus when Jesus as he's speaking to them says these words. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. We don't exercise power and leadership like the kings of the Gentiles do, being sure that everybody's fully aware that we're in charge and we're a big deal and you're under my thumb. We exercise leadership and power by getting on our knees and rubbing our hands on stinky feet by paying attention to the needs of those who are around us and expending our energy to meet them. You see, the word for service here in this text is actually the word for waiter, someone who waits at a table. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't simply serve in a generic type of form. He serves here in the actual expression of the term itself. He becomes the waiter of the disciples. And a great waiter is one who has knowledge of the needs of those who are around him. And then he stops at nothing to make those needs his own needs, and he meets them. You see, this is, this is what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, um, even in the midst of this very tragic declaration that one of his greatest disciples, the P- Peter himself, is going to deny him. This is a service that Jesus is doing to let Peter know ahead of time what it is that's going to happen. He said, this is, this is a way that I'm serving you Peter, and we see an expression of that service as we look at verses 31 to 34. He says, Peter, I want you to know there's a great battle that you're about to face, an incredible battle that you're about to face, because Satan has come and he's asked, oh wait, no, demanded. He's demanded that you be sifted like wheat. Now, what's interesting about this is as he says that in verse 31, those two instances of the word you in verse 31, If you were to read them here in the English, it sounds like he's obviously just referencing Peter. But what's interesting is the you in both of those instances of verse 31 is plural. It's plural. What seems to be the case is that the Lord Jesus is actually saying, you disciples are going to be sifted like wheat, but you, Peter, specifically, you're the first victim. You're the first victim. I want to prepare you because then you're going to have a ministry to the others. I'm going to prepare you because you're going to have a ministry to the others. And so the, it's a plural here. all of the disciples are going to be sifted like wheat. All of them are going to come under the power and the temptation and struggle with the evil one. But Peter specifically, and, and I want you to see when the evil one comes to Peter what his purposes are, and it's what his purposes are generally for us, even when we come under spiritual warfare. He says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, that your faith might not fail. Might not fail, what does the evil one want for Peter? He wants to see his his faith fail. He wants to see his faith fail. He would like nothing more than to have the leader, in a sense, of the disciples, the one who has been set apart for unique work, even among Jesus, that he would be sifted about, shook about, bruised and broken, so much so that he would doubt his call, doubt Jesus, doubt the goodness of God, and ultimately recant and quit following Jesus. You see, this spiritual warfare thing is, is real. It's serious. It's no laughing matter. This is the aim of the evil one. This is the aim of his minions, I mean, Paul took it very seriously when he was encouraging Timothy. Timothy, who is sometimes referred to as timid Timothy, right? One who sometimes struggled with a sense of boldness in terms of his ministry. As he's writing to him, as he's serving at the church of Ephesus, in the first letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, I charge you, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare... Holding faith in a good conscience. And then he gives him a note of concern. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenus, Hymenus and Alexander, whom, notice, I have handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Dark words. Incredibly difficult words. As, as Paul speaks to Timothy, he says, Peter, I don't, P- Timothy, I don't want you to become like Hymenaeus or Alexandria. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to make shipwreck of your faith. I want you to stay holding faith with clear conscience. I don't want your faith to fail. This is a super, sobering reminder. Because right now in this room, almost every one of you who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ can probably recall someone in your past or in your present who has forsaken Christ and is no longer walking with him. And maybe because of their belief structure, they've got into heretical teachings and it completely took them awry, or or what is often more probable, the fact that they begin to get caught in a snare of sin and begin to go on a path that was wayward and left the faith entirely. We're told that we don't battle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It says, John Bunyan wrote, We're in the midst of a holy war wherever we go. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that there's a fight for your soul going on? That there's a war? that is happening? Are you ready for it? You see, Peter thought he was. Peter thought he was. Peter responded in this particular text. He says, Lord, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go a prison. I'm ready to die with you, man. I know you're talking about the evil one and all this stuff, and he's coming, he's gonna sift me and all that kind of thing. You, do you understand what kind of resolve I have? And let me just pan back to last Sunday if you were here. You remember the resolve you had last Sunday that life was going to be different this week? You remember that conviction that came over you? And you remember, remember the work of the Holy Spirit and how everything was going to be different? You were going to fall in the way that you fell this last week, right? Right. How many, how many times have you walked out with so, in, so much encouragement, so much true encouragement, real spiritual work, and then somehow or another the energy and the power and the resolve for that diffused before even Monday morning showed up? You know, it's, it's easy to feel strong when you anticipate a battle. It's really different when you're in the thick of warfare. It's really different. And some of us, like Peter, have had to learn it the hard way. And I think, you know, at this point, you know, someone wants to ask, well, pastor, uh, tell me then how do I get equipped to be able to fight this battle? And what I love about this passage, and we could go to a lot of scriptures and I could talk about that. What I love about this passage is that's not what Jesus does at all. He doesn't give Peter three points in a poem and says, you know, here's how you're going to really combat the evil one. Here's how you're going to stick it to him. Peter, you are strong. You're going to be able to handle this. Instead, what we see is the focus of this passage is not what we do in spiritual warfare, but what Jesus does for us in the midst of spiritual warfare. You see, he says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. But I have prayed for you. I'm not sure we can find more comforting words than that little phrase in all of the Scripture. Peter, a terrible sifting of the devil is coming, but take heart, I'm lifting you up to the throne of grace. (laughs) Isn't it intriguing here that Jesus doesn't provide Peter with a few points of how to go to battle with the evil one? I find that just incredibly insightful. He doesn't give him an ar- ammunition. He doesn't give him an armament. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't show him how it is that he can be sure that he's going to lick him. What he says is that, Peter, I've prayed for you. Rest in this, friends. That's what he's saying. Underneath the spiritual battles of your life and the strength of those battles is not your ability to fight the evil one, but Jesus' prayer for you. Jesus' prayer for you. Do you see, he's constantly whispering in the Father's ear, keep her from failing. Uh, preserve him. He's close to giving up, Father. Lead that man to repentance. Draw that wondering lady back into the fold. Do you see, that's what Jesus is doing. Right now, even as your heart is communing with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is making intercession for you at the right hand of the Father. And that, your strength in fighting the temptations and the battles of the evil one is not in the, the valiant um, efforts of your own might. It's in the fact that Jesus right now prays for you. You see, it's interesting in here that he doesn't even say to Peter, you know what, Peter? You, I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't falter. That's not what he says. He says, Peter, I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. It doesn't fail. It doesn't completely give up the ghost. That's that's what I'm going to be praying for. Peter, I've prayed for you in that way. He doesn't pray that he's never going to falter. as As if perfection was a possibility for Peter through this process. You get the the sense that Jesus is fully aware that Peter has no idea what he's up against. He has no idea what he's up against and that Jesus is quite realistic about the weaknesses of Peter. You've probably been in that case. Maybe you've been in that case with your children. Maybe you can can look back on a piece of your life and you can see when somebody else was looking at you this way where you're speaking to someone and they're telling you about their plans and they're telling you about what they're going to do and you're, you know removed from the situation and you're maybe older and maybe you're a wiser in the situation and you can see that they think they're going to be ready to do what it is that they think they're going to do and you can see that they're going 100 miles an hour to run off of a cliff but they're going to do so valiantly and you're just sitting there and you go you know what at this point, Jesus has been walking with Peter three years. He's instructed him. He's got Jesus' voice echoing in his head. You know, this is not the point for, for, for Jesus to preach a sermon to Peter. This is the point for him to look Peter in the eyes and he goes, Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. Jesus knows what's ahead. We're not going to get out of this chapter before this. What Jesus is prophesying here comes true. You see, we see this kind of illustrated in the next section, which we won't take a lot of time on this morning. But Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, you remember that time in the past where I sent you out? In Luke 9 and Luke 10, I sent you out without a money bag and a knapsack and all of those things. And, and were you ever in want? And they go, no, no, you're always provided. Right. People would joyfully embrace the gospel, and they gratefully provided for all of your needs. Well, I want you, I want you to know, uh, disciples, that that time is coming to an end. Um, now, after we leave this Last Supper, things are going to get really dicey. Um, and, and you better keep the money bag and knapsack with you. You're going to need provisions. And, and you might even consider selling your, your cloak and getting a sword. And now it seems that Jesus might be suggesting that they're about to go out and, and really give it to the Romans. Now this is the time that he's going to militarily finally usher in the kingdom. The disciples actually in this passage, you can see almost the gleam in their eye when they go, hey, look, Jesus, we found two swords. Here they are. And Jesus goes, it's enough. Just enough of this. Just stop it. Just quit. Just quit. Jesus is not saying we're about to go out and militarily usher in the kingdom and overthrow Rome with your two swords. Jesus, that's not what we're about to do here. That's not how my kingdom is built. It's not built on the, on the backs of shedding the blood of the Gentiles and throwing some Gentile king into the throne of Rome or, or me as the Jewish Messiah becoming the, the king over the world. That's not how this it go, goes about. Instead, what Jesus is saying, this is going to be a time where protection is needed, where wisdom and guardedness is needed where we're going to have to realize that we're going to come on attack and there's going to be a need for us to be on the defensive, not on the offensive. In fact, the disciples took this very seriously, didn't they? You remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? They took those two swords with them. And as soon as Judas comes and the betrayal begins to happen, one of the disciples goes, is this when we're supposed to use our swords? And of course, one of them does and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And what does Jesus say? Enough of this you guys don't get my kingdom. You don't get how it is I'm, I'm working. You see, I'm not about putting in a ruler over the kingdom of Rome and doing that on shedding the blood of those who are around me. Instead, I'm building a kingdom that is not of this world that only comes through the shedding of my blood. It's a really different kind of kingdom. You see, that's what that's really what Jesus means here in verse 37 when he quotes from Isaiah 53 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. It's a reference, of course, to the cross, but it's a reference even to the point of the Garden of Gethsemane as he's taken into arrest. He, he says, You come to me like I'm a robber in that passage. You come to me with clubs and swords, like I'm gonna resist, like I've done something wrong and I'm gonna have to flee. You've come to me and you're treating me like I'm a criminal. And Jesus says, But this must be so. Because I will be the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 in that glorious chapter of the suffering servant, which we will explore together on Friday in our Good Friday service. That suffering servant is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was classified among the transgressors. He would die the death of a criminal. Because he had come to die for criminals. He was numbered among the transgressors because he had come to die for the transgressors. Isn't isn't these three stories, I mean, aren't they very clearly pictures of Jesus being numbered among the transgressors? I mean, let's think of it. He's, in the first story, numbered among the self-centered who fight about whoever's going to be the greatest. And he's right there with them. Not fighting, not engaging, but he's numbered among this motley crew. He's numbered in the second pericope with with Peter among the prideful and the self-assured who are deceived and think they are strong when in fact they are weak and needy. And isn't he in this last section, numbered among the dim-witted and the rash who think the kingdom is brought in by the sword and by violence? I mean, these are the people he's numbered with. This is his team. This is the A-team. You see, the realization is today is that Jesus continues in the spirit of this very passage to be numbered among the transgressors. He's numbered among you and me today. You see, God loves us and he knows and he never desires or wishes that evil would befall us. But he does, as we see in this passage, allow evil to come at times, to enter into our lives. He he allows it to sift us. You know the process of sifting? When you, when you sift grain, it's to get the coarser and the grainier aspects of the grain out so that you can have a pure flour that could be soft and workable for the purposes of baking, baking a bread. It was it was in a sense to purify. You see, the Satan here is really just a tool in, in God's hands because as he comes to Peter and he says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Then he says to Peter, Peter, I want you to go ahead and know this because you're going to be discouraged. When you return, when you turn again, when you repent and come back to your senses, not if, but when, he says, I have a mission for you. I want you then to strengthen the brothers. What? Okay, let me get this straight. So, you mean to tell me you want me, Peter, after I've made a royal mess of everything, to return to my brothers, the disciples, and strengthen them? Yes, Peter, that's what I'm saying. How do you make sense of that instruction? Well, only in the realization that when when we have passed through faltering faith and we have fallen into sin and we hear the rooster crow and we go out and remember exactly what Jesus has said and we weep bitterly When we return from that experience, in the midst of our weakness, Jesus says, I'm making you a fit instrument in my kingdom. You see, some of us thought when we came in this morning that ministry effectiveness was was completely dependent upon our personal faithfulness. Jesus is teaching us something really different. Uh, Jesus is teaching us what Randy taught us this morning, what Marge has taught us, what Logan has taught us, what Bob Walk has taught us, what's true in your life too, is that faithfulness and effectiveness in ministry has absolutely nothing to do with your competency as a person. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is fitting you with his power and he uses you despite you. That's what this story is about. That's why he can go strengthen the brothers. Why? Because he knows he's not strong anymore. He, he knows that he had said some really dumb things when he said, Jesus, I'm willing to go to prison and die for you. <laughs> he had no idea. Peter would go to prison and die for Jesus. But he had to fall first. Not fail. Not give up. But he had to fall. And he had to know that the strength comes from the fact that Jesus prayed for him. This morning, Jesus lives to make intercession for you and me. And the weak areas of your life and the places of your life that you think, oh man, I'll never be able to speak to someone about that. I'll never be able to help to someone. I'm just a total wretch myself. Sounds like you're in pretty good company with Peter. Jesus is praying for you. And his prayer is that you would not fail. That your faith would not fail. And when you return, he will strengthen you. That's our confidence in the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now, through the finished and completed and perfected work of Jesus, we can know that our strength is not in ourselves and our hope is only in him. So make much of him in our hearts right now and give us his joy and his strength. We ask it in his name. Amen.